Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Emma's unfinished artwork. We are so excited to welcome our guest, Georgie Castilla, who will be joining us for our discussion on Emma's unfinished artwork in addition to chatting with us about his own work. So it's a two for special for you all today. Georgie Castilla is a New Jersey, New York City-based lyricist, production designer, and costume designer for film and theater, and a freelance comic artist and illustrator. He is the founder of Dunieth Comics and creator of Regency-era-inspired webcomics Garden of the Year, What Would Jane Do?, and Spinsterly Ever After. As well as the LGBTQ plus slice of life strip, Your Sense and My Sensibility. Georgie is a member of the Jane Austen Society of North America's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee, as well as the ad hoc search committee tasked with finding an ombudsperson to assist JASNA members regarding EDI concerns. Welcome, Georgie. We're so glad to have you here today. Yay, thank you. I'm so honored to be here. So to set us up for the Emma portion of the episode today, we are discussing the part in the book, it's very early on in the novel, when Emma and Harriet have recently become friends, and Emma, as part of her maneuverings to match Harriet with Mr. Elton, has decided to take Harriet's likeness. As part of the process of deciding on the size of the portrait, Emma brings out her portfolio to show some examples of her work to Harriet and Mr. Elton. So Georgie, would you mind setting us up by reading the quote from the book for us? Absolutely. Emma wished to go to work directly and therefore produced a portfolio containing her various attempts at portraits, for not one of them had ever been finished, that they might decide together on the best size for Harriet. Her many beginnings were displayed. Miniatures, half-lengths, whole-lengths, pencil, crayon, and watercolors had been all tried in turn. She had always wanted to do everything, and had made more progress both in drawing and music than many might have done with so little labor as she would ever submit to. She played and sang and drew in almost every style, but steadiness had always been wanting, and in nothing had she approached the degree of excellence which she would have been glad to command and ought not to have failed of. She was not much deceived as to her own skill, either as an artist or a musician, but she was not unwilling to have others deceived or sorry to know her reputation for accomplishment, often higher than it deserved. I love in that section that Austin kind of sets Emma up as kind of knowing what her limitations are. It's kind of delightful. So our focus today is on Emma's unfinished attempts at portraits. So we won't be getting into the portrait she does of Harriet and that whole process, because that's a separate episode that we plan on doing. But, uh, you know, as we say, love to say on the podcast, you know, stay tuned. It's coming. <laughs> So to start off, let's do a little definition work here of the types of portraits that she mentions in the passage that Georgie read, because she mentions miniatures, half lengths, and whole lengths. So let's kind of talk a little bit about what this means. This is referring to the size and format of the portraits. A miniature was a portable portrait, often enclosed in some sort of case or locket, typically featuring only the face and maybe the head of the subject, you know, shoulders up kind of thing. A half length would have been showing the subject from the waist or mid calf up, but basically you would never see any feet. That latter type of portrait started to be called the three quarters length in the Victorian era. And if you could see the entire figure from head to toe, then you have a whole length portrait. 
And I'll just say that this is actually pretty confusing <laughs> because the various terms and what they mean have changed over time. And there were also really specific ways that the world of formal oil portrait painting were naming their systems versus, you know, the canvas and the way that canvas was cut. So it's it's a really complex system, but that's kind of a, a good guidepost, essentially. Additionally, she mentions, Austin mentions that Emma works in pencil, crayon, and watercolors. And Emma would have been working in pencil, crayon, and watercolors in terms of medium. That's that's the way the art is being created. So these mediums were the ones that were taught to ladies and used by amateur artists. So obviously you're seeing you're you're not seeing any oil on canvas attempts here. That was kind of for the masters, essentially. It was messy, it was smelly work, and definitely would have been regarded as outside the realm of the standard genteel accomplishments. So that's what she's working in as far as sizes and mediums at this point. Yeah, she's not going to be working on one of those huge wall-sized canvases of like some epic scene from history or whatever. Although I do think that Harriet would be really interesting in that platform. <laughs> you know, give her give her the full-on historic painting treatment. <laughs> <laughs> That's just being greedy. Poor Emma didn't even finish one watercolor. Now we want her to, to paint a mural. <laughs> mm, not going to happen. <laughs> she just gets the background painted and that's it. She's like, mm, I'm, I'm over this. I'm out. <laughs> I just now cannot get over the idea of Emma just painting murals all over Highbury. Like, it's just... (laughs) Half-finished murals all over Highbury. You could turn it, which also very much fits in with the novel, you could turn it into like a riddle game. It's like a half-finished mural. And then what is the rest of the painting going to be? Right. You have to play some really bad Scrabble with Frank Churchill to solve the clues. Oh, my goodness. goodness. Yeah, so painting and drawing were both very standard female accomplishments for women of Emma's class. So it makes sense that this is something she would have pursued. It's also evidence of her education and access to these sorts of advantages. So, you know, not every lady would have necessarily had um, instruction in all these things. Like maybe they would have just gotten music or maybe they would have just had a drawing master. And some of these mediums would have been a little bit more expensive than others um, in terms of like who, who's, who has access to this financially as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've always found very interesting, you know, how, how the whole accomplishments in society work. And I've always found one of my favorite passages in, in all of Austin is actually Mr. Bingley in Pride and Prejudice talks about women or women or being accomplished, you know, and, and, and he says something like, I don't know how you ladies have the patience to be so accomplished. I've never heard of a lady that is not accomplished, you know, and we're talking about a, a society in which that's how women express themselves. We're talking about a, a world that was dominated by men, you know, and women did not have a lot of windows, you know, to, to express themselves. And, and I think that these were the little things that they were using to tell the world that they were not invisible, that they had a voice, that they had an aesthetic, that they had a point of view, even if it was a little watercolor flowers or learning musical piece or singing a duet. It, it was all this kind of like passive competition, you know, and was like, I just need to be accomplished. And some women had it easier than others. Emma is, is a woman of fortune. She, she could have the luxury of not being good at anything because her life is pretty much set. But then if you compare it with Jane Fairfax, for example, who's background is a little trickier. I've always felt like the, the reason that Jane Fairfax is so accomplished is because she has to. Yeah. She, she doesn't have the luxury of, of just 
being mediocre at anything because she just needs to prove the world and her society that she's worth it. Yep. And, and I think that, that, that for women, accomplishments were that, were the cards, the only cards they had to play in this game. Well, it was like, like you said, it was very much a way to express yourself, but it was also, it was also your currency. Absolutely. It's kind of like your CV, right? Your resume, where it's like, this is what I can do. I will now perform my CV for you. Look at how good I will be as a wife or whatever. And Emma's sitting over here with her 30,000 pound dowry and her father who lets her do whatever. I mean, I feel like she kind of earns her father letting her do whatever because she's very attentive to everything (laughs) he wants. But Emma is somebody who has, as you said, Georgie, she has the luxury, right, of dabbling in accomplishments. She draws, but not with great mastery. She plays and sings, but nowhere near as well as Jane Fairfax, because Jane Fairfax has to be accomplished. Exactly. If she's not accomplished, she's not going to get a job. So it's a literal resume for Jane Fairfax. Yes. You know, with with, with some of these other accomplished ladies, it's not. In her case, it is. You're right. And that's kind of a weird way to think of artistry in this time period, but I think it's important to frame at least Jane Fairfax's accomplishments in that very specific light because because it's literally the way that she's going to get any kind of placement if she's if she's going to have to work as a governess. And it's also your CV for marrying, especially if you aren't a wealthy heiress. These accomplishments are part of the socially acceptable packaging for a woman to make herself desirable, which is a big deal when we're talking about economic security and That is something that Jane Fairfax has to be aware of, but that Emma doesn't have to worry about. So for Emma, it's more about occupying her mind, which I don't want to downplay. We have talked before about how constricting Emma's environment can be, but she definitely doesn't have to worry about having her basic needs met. So again, she's able to dabble and pursue whatever interests her in the moment. Well, there's there's also that running theme of a lack of honest feedback from anyone that's around Emma, which I think is kind of a really interesting thing. Like she's okay with everybody thinking she's much better at everything she does than she actually is. But she knows that she's kind of like just okay at most of the things that she does. <laughs> I love that she's like very self-aware about it. <laughs> she is self-aware. You're, that's Yeah, that's a very good point. And sometimes we tend to forget that because she sometimes she can sound a little too entitled and too full of herself, but she's she's very insecure. Yeah, yeah. You know, she, she knows. She knows that she's not as accomplished as Jane Fairfax and she envies her accomplishments, but she just doesn't have the patience to do it or I wouldn't say the patience. I think it's she doesn't have the motivation because everyone just pets her and says, you're, you're perfect. You're beautiful. You know, the entire world spins around you. She has it easy when it comes to that, you know, and the father and Mr. Elton and Harriet and, and Miss Taylor, a.k.a. Mrs. Weston. They're always praising her, you know, and something that I've always uh, like kind of like perceived, maybe this is just me, but I think that because she's so self-aware of her lack of artistry, and I'm speaking from my own point of view as an artist, when you finish a work, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the world and the world is invited to have an opinion and to interpret it. And the fact that she's so self-aware that she's not as good as everyone thinks she is. The fact that she never finishes the works is because she's living it open to interpretation. I'm working on it. Oh, yeah. Because if it's unfinished, it has that promise 
of that one day is going to be great. One, when, once you finish it, it's going to be great. But she never finishes because she doesn't want that final opinion. She doesn't want that critique. So I've always felt like there's this sense of, of procrastinating things, saying, I'll finish it later. I'll get back to it later because she doesn't, she doesn't want to finish it because she doesn't know how to finish it. And I've been there. So I totally understand her. I've been there. It's like, you know, it, it, it's something that, that it's full of promise, but we don't have to end it right now. We don't have to put that final period to it. Let's just let it linger and live it there and open to interpretation. And I, and yeah, I've always found that very interesting. It's funny because we know that Emma is actually fairly naturally talented and is kind of able to coast on that. So even though she hasn't the level of excellence or true artistry that she might be capable of or wish that she had, Austin does tell us that there was merit in every drawing. So she isn't incompetent or anything. She has taste. But by not finishing, she's able to be in the space where her artwork is still full of potential. Like she's living in this world of artistic potential, as opposed to putting herself in a position where it's like, it's finished now. Judge me. Give me your opinions. Exactly. Exactly. And Georgia, you said that, that, that she, might, she might not even know how to finish. I think that that's a really interesting artistic take on this as well, that, there's, that there is that kind of moment in the, the creative process where you actually have to say, okay, how does this end? What is the end game here? Because always what's in your head, it's so hard to translate that into artistry, regardless of your medium, I think. And so I think that that phrasing that you used, that she doesn't even know how to finish, I think, I think that that's probably true of Emma at large in some senses. Yeah. I think so much of this is also what makes Emma, despite the fact that, you know, she is very privileged. She's the only Austin heroine that's just so wealthy and kind of has everything made for her. But that, at least for me, still makes her such a lovable heroine and somebody that I think you can really connect with. Because she's not a Lady Catherine, right? Going around bragging about being a great proficient at everything. That's true. She never, she never brags about it. She never talks about it. There's a level of just self-awareness and, and knowledge of where she's at and kind of her skill level. And mm, I'll just leave this in the sketch stage, which is what she's done with all these half-finished portraits. And she's even kind of like pointing out, she's like, oh, you know, I really did. I did a good job with this corner of the sofa. And like, you know, like <laughs> she, she can see the parts that have potential there. I mean, Emma tells us about her almost finished portrait of John Knightley that she herself was actually quite pleased with, but that her sister Isabella didn't think did him justice. And I feel like this is really every creative's nightmare, right? So either you have something you're kind of met about and definitely don't think is your best work and Mr. Elton loves it and won't stop talking about it, or you do something you're quite proud of and think is good and suddenly everyone's a critic. You know, like you said, Georgie, just not quite bringing it across the finish line because then you never have to worry about it being judged. It's just like, oh, these are just little sketches I just tossed off in a couple minutes. Like, no big deal. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like that's true with, with writing for me. I, I realize that that's a different kind of medium, but I think, I think that that's the truth with, with writing for me, where it's like, I have big plans for this idea. Like, I am going to really blow this out of the water. And then you're like mid-project and you're like, yeah, um, my concept is solid, but uh, <laughs> execution is struggling. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but if you don't have at least one started but very, very much unfinished novel on your computer, like, I don't even want to talk to you. You know what I mean? It's just, come on. Oh, gosh. And if you're listening to this and you just went, ooh, yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think we all have a little bit of that in us. Definitely. Absolutely. 
with Emma and all of her like accomplishments that and she and, and Emma again is is very comfortable with like people just thinking she's better than she is. She doesn't brag about it. She just kind of lets it slide. Whereas Mrs. Elton is very interested in letting everybody <laughs> know that she has all of these accomplishments, like all of the accomplishments. And yet we see none of them in the novel. Because she's a fraud. <laughs> Where is Maple Grove? <laughs> Georgie just calling it out. It's not on the map. <laughs> really, though, it's Emma's fault. If she would have just formed a musical club, then we would have all had the opportunity to hear Mrs. Elton play. Oh, goodness. Can you imagine? <laughs> what a more uncomfortable gathering than the musical club co-hosted by Mrs. Elton and Emma. I just, my skin is crawling just thinking about it. And they invite Jane at Fairfax and she's just like, what have I gotten into? <laughs> right. While in the in the background you have Miss Bates going, oh, oh <laughs> nothing wanting. <laughs> yes, the sycophants in the room just being like, I love it. Give us more. Which <laughs> <laughs> is perfect because Emma's in her head thinking, okay, that's not true, but I'll accept the praise. And Mrs. Elton is over there thinking, yeah, you're right. I am the best. <laughs> that's so true. So true. All of this is giving me serious Amy March in Little Women vibes. And mm. I haven't, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. I haven't actually seen the Winona writer adaptation, but it's in the book. <laughs> and it also comes up in the most recent adaptation where Amy just, she has no desire to produce anything second rate and also has that awareness. And she says, because talent isn't genius and no amount of energy can make it so. I want to be great or nothing. I won't be a commonplace dauber, so I don't intend to try anymore. I mean, I kind of love that. And then of course, she continues on to tell Lori that her plan is just to marry Rich, which, you know, like, good for her. So <laughs> Decent plan. Yeah. I just love that you bring this up because I know it's a very, very unpopular opinion, but Amy is indeed my favorite little woman. Thank you. Thank you, Georgie. This is why we're friends right now. Like, you and I are just vibing with each other on so many levels. I know. I know everyone, everyone hates her, but she's my fave. Amy March forever. Amy forever. Since we are here talking about Emma and her artwork today, we obviously need to talk to you, Georgie, about your own artwork. So can you tell us about the origins of Dunieth Comics? And specifically, I'm very curious about the name as well. Oh my goodness, I saw that coming. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, it's just disgustingly nerdy. Which we're here for. Before I got into Austin, I was, I still am a huge Tolkien fan. So um, I am a huge fan of all things Middle Earth, and I, I was part of the Tolkien Society for many years, and I was part of this kind of like small group that we did a lot of like role playing, and we would like pretend that we were elves and something incredibly nerdy that I'm not going to get into much <laughs> detail in, but Dunieth is basically my magic oh, name. Oh, okay. My name, which is George, literally means farmer or man who works the soil. And the word Dunieth, it is the elvish form for the Sindarin form of farmer. Okay. With the TH, which is the masculine, the, what makes the, the name masculine. If I were uh, taking a female name, it would be Duniel okay. instead of Duniath. So yeah, that it's something that's been with me ever since like probably high school. And like some of my close friends always called me Dunieth. Oh, and, I love that. And it's something that I carried always. So yeah. When I started like doing my comics and my things, it was just, why not? You know, it's my magic name. I like it. Yeah. And, yeah. Everything about that story is everything I ever wanted. Mm -hmm. Just all my favorite things. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was perfect. <laughs> yes, it is elvish. I love it. 
With your comics, you you actually spend a lot of time portraying Austin and this period particularly. So what is it that you love most about portraying Austin through comics? What's what's kind of inspiring your work here? It's just very interesting because honestly, it was it wasn't planned. I'm into theater and after I graduated from uh, theater, I I went to Europe. I went to fashion school because I've always been into historical fashion and all of that. So while I was in fashion school, I wanted to focus on 19th century fashion. And I just discovered that whenever I was like at a cafe or, you know, I was stressed out and I just wanted to like, I always doodle whenever I'm like feeling anxious. That is something that's always caught me down. And I would just grab a napkin or whatever I have in front of me and I start doodling. And for some reason, like 80% of my doodles end up being ladies in Regency dresses. I don't know why. It's, it's a habit that I developed when I was in fashion school. And then like out of the blue, those like fashion sketches started to get more cartoony because I, you know, I started like exploring with the style and all of that. And, and I've always been a comics kind of person. When I was in, in high school, I was, I had these cartoons called Jerry's and Boris, which were like two little cats. And, and I was doing the comics for the school newspaper. It's been kind of like part of my life always. I never pursued like professionally because like theater was always like my first love, but I never stopped doing it. So it's something that I've always done on the side. So when I started getting into Jane Austen and reading a lot about like Regency and more like Georgian topics and all of that, I started doing comics just to, you know, just as a hobby. And I honestly did never plan to create something that nowadays I can proudly call a small business. Duniat Comics was born as a personal gallery on Instagram for me to feature my doodles. And because I had this just crazy idea when I started writing Spinsterly Ever After, which is a comic inspired by my sister, because my sister is a very badass woman in her 30s who's unmarried. And she has to deal with the fact that we come from a very traditional family that I was, I was born and raised in Mexico, in the very south of Mexico, in Yucatan. I grew up in, in high society. So I grew up with debutante balls that's, that's still happening every December 31st in my hometown. And um, my mom was a beauty queen. And so I grew up with this society in which women have to be beautiful and have to be accomplished and have to marry well. And my sister has done nothing of those things. So she, she's always... She has that pressure, you know, uh, she always has like grandma saying, when are you getting married? You getting gotcha. married? I just find that super funny. So I started writing this comic strips about a princess who is unmarried and has this very funny relationship with her grandmother who's always trying to matchmake her. Love it. Because the kingdom needs a king, you know, because women, we women are not taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I started doing Spinsterly Ever After. And after that, I started getting into more like Regency things and all of that. And well, when you think of Regency, like you have to think of Jane Austen. And I started like doing Jane Austen cartoons and strips and jokes and all of that. And I started uploading them on my Instagram account and a few of them got viral and uh, <laughs> and the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite one and the one that I think probably has gone most viral is your is More Pride, Less Prejudice. Oh, yeah. I was not expecting that one. That's funny because that illustration is actually recycled. <laughs> The original illustration doesn't have the background. The original illustration, which I did for my merchandise for uh, Redbubble, uh, the original illustration is that Jane holding the cup of tea. Uh, the background is a window with like a, a sunset. And I'm very proud of that illustration because I think, I think I got the light. 
just right and and I just love my my pinks <laughs> but then when pride month came around I just wanted to do something special and so I kind of like took that Jane and I changed the background and I put the rainbow and I put the quote and it just became a hit and it became my bestseller in my stores but it's it's been really special honestly like to have so many Janeites purchase and wear this you know in stickers and mugs and t-shirts just to show respect and support and love for the LGBTQ plus community with my art it just meant the world to me yeah you know because it's like yeah it's so special so I guess kind of building on that idea of that example that you just gave us of a piece of art that you work have worked on can you walk us through a bit of your artistic process like I'm curious how you come up with these concepts and how they go from idea to reality well when it comes to comics and let's just clarify because Whenever people talk about comic, the first thing you think of is like superheroes. Mm. But um, there is an entire world of comics that has nothing to do with superheroes. I am a superhero fan, but when it comes to comics, I've always been more into the non-superhero comics like Blondie and Calvin and Hobbes and Dennis and the little orphan Annie. The Archie comics, I'm a huge fan of the Archie comics. So that was kind of like my style. And and I think that my style is much more like that kind of cartoon and not the realistic, you know, Buffy, Marvel, DC comic kind of stuff. That's kind of like an art of its own. And it's just, I have so much respect for it. But I'm much more into like the cutesy, cartoony, kind of like newspaper strip kind of thing. So when it comes to my art process, I usually start, if I'm doing a, a graphic novel, which for those who do not know, a graphic novel is basically a larger version of a comic. A comic is, is it's just shorter and it leaves you hanging issue after issue because the story doesn't conclude and you always end the issue on a cliffhanger because you, wanna, you want people to buy the next issue and you keep writing the story for as long as it sells. Graphic novel... It has, it's it's just like reading a book. It has a beginning, it has a, a conflict and resolution and, and everything is resolved by the, the end of the book. So if I'm doing a, a graphic novel, I start with the, the thumbnails, which is just kind of like sketching how I imagine the page to be with a little, you know, like quick sketches on how am I going to do the panels. And then from, from the thumbnails, I move to the sketch and from the sketch to the inks and from the inks to the color and then the shading and special effects. And uh, I am a digital artist now, just because I live in a very small apartment and I don't have space to carry supplies. And, and because it is just so convenient now with the age of technology, just designing and doing everything on my iPad, it's ready to go. It's print ready, it's publishing ready. So so yeah, but it's still the same process. You still have layer after layer after layer yeah. and you just build it up until you have it. So why do you think it is that Austin's works lend themselves so well to this kind of comic storytelling and these these strips, the, the, the artwork that you're doing? That is a great question. You know, every time I read Jane Austen, I, I've always felt like Jane Austen novels are very dialogue driven. You know, the conversations have this really fast pace, you know, like she doesn't, she doesn't stop to describe the gardens and the flowers and, the, you know, her descriptions are very brief to the point we don't know we have no idea what characters right. look like yep. you know she's it's up to you up to your imagination and the conversations are so rich sometimes when i read jane austen i feel like i'm reading a, a theatrical mm, play mm -hmm. that makes sense you know because you have all this dialogue entire pages of conversation so i'm not gonna say it's easy but it's very organic and very 
natural to transpose it into a medium that is heavily rely on visual composition because Jane Austen is giving you complete freedom to imagine her world because then you don't have to worry about the story and you don't have to worry about the dialogues and you don't have to worry what you're going to write in those little speech balloons because she's giving you everything. Yeah, right. So you only need to put color and silhouettes. Just create art, you know? Yeah, you're saying that to two people who can't draw. So we're, we're like, oh, yeah, no big deal. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like, I really do. I do love the concept that you're, you're kind of fleshing out for me, that the, the visual tapestry is just so open to interpretation for you. I mean, and maybe that's why we, why, why so many people love the adaptations, whether that's the, these, these comic versions or the visual, anything that's going to give us more of a visual component. I think we fall in love with the way that that can be represented and the, and the range of possibilities. You're absolutely, I hadn't really thought of it before, but I, I, you know, now that you say it, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. This is a very wonderful place to develop different ways of representing Austen's depictions. Absolutely. And I think it's just really interesting that Jane Austen in the world of comics is very recent. The very first adaptation of a Jane Austen novel published by a, uh, big budget mainstream company which was marvel was pride and prejudice and that came out in 2009 so they're fairly new you know some people will cringe when i say this but it is all thanks to the 2005 pride and prejudice film adaptation you might love it you might hate it but the fact is that movie really opened up so many doors and windows to a brand new generation of younger janeites and that is why we are having this boom of Jane Austen being this, I don't know, this, I just call it the cult of celebrity <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. surrounding her. Sometimes I just wish she could see that she is a Funko Pop and a sticker and mug and a tote bag, you know, and, <laughs> and, and that's, it's, it's fairly recent, you know, it all happened after all of these popular adaptations that started happening outside the world of BBC television, which is not accessible to the entire world, you know, but then you produce a movie that is released internationally. And then people who had no idea who Jane Austen was, now it's suddenly all about Austen. So I am thankful for those adaptations, whether we like them or not, you know, I'm just really thankful because I, I, I strongly believe that every generation should have their own very slice mm, of Jane Austen. Yeah. And, and I think as, as a Janeite myself, I feel, the, I feel that I have a duty and I have a responsibility to open the door for the next Janeites because we're not going to be here forever. Yeah. So what is next? Like, tell us about your exciting and upcoming yeah. projects. <laughs> well, I've been doing a few beautiful collaborations. Thanks to Duniath Comics, I've, I've been so blessed. I've been meeting a lot of people, uh, a lot of Janeites, and um, um, I rejoined the... Jane Austen Society during the pandemic. I took a break because of something that happened. I did not feel welcome. It was very hard to be the only gay man. And I had a couple of unfortunate, a series of unfortunate events that I'm not going to get into detail, but I was very disappointed and I took a break. And when the, the EDI committee was formed, my friends brought me back and said, we need you because we, we need to tell the world that Jane Austen is for right, everyone. Yeah. And that's why I started the, the, this whole campaign of the, the, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, there's an illustration that says Jane Austen is for everyone. Another one of your gorgeous, like viral 
illustrations as well. <laughs> Thank you so much. For those who have not seen it, it just portrays little characters of diverse ethnicities dressed in Regency because we're trying to tell to tell the world that, you know, um, Jane Austen is for everyone. And because her novels are so universal and so so human, you can still enjoy them. You don't have to be British or, or white, you know, you can be anything and still enjoy it and still be part of, of, of this wonderful phenomenon of, of the world of Jane Austen, you know. So what is next for Duniath Comics is I've been doing those these collaborations with Cassandra's Closet, uh, and I'm so happy with the tote bags and apparel is coming. But what I'm currently working on now is actually Emma. I am working on a graphic novel adaptation of Emma. What I think or what I hope that will make this adaptation to comic special is the fact that I am casting people of different ethnicities. I just think that we need to see a little more representation in Jane Austen. I just felt like if I'm going to do an adaptation of Jane Austen, I don't want to do something that someone has done before, you know, and if we're going to do it, let's just bring something different to the table. And because we are aiming, I am collaborating with a couple of friends and we are trying to introduce Jane Austen in, in schools. So we're trying to create this project to come up with like a school box full of material accessible for younger audiences, focus on Austin. And I was like, I want a comic there. You know, I want to create a comic for young audiences, but a comic in which more than one ethnicity will see themselves. So that's what it, I'm working on it right now. I love that. It sounds amazing. Thank you. Now I just have to finish it. <laughs> Not like, unlike Emma. <laughs> that's all. That's all. Oh my goodness. And you have an upcoming talk at the... I mean, it's coming up quite soon, right? At the next JASNA AGM, correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to be in Chicago, October uh, 14th. My, well, the AGM is uh, from the 14th through the 17th. But my, my talk is going to be on um, the 14th in the evening. And yeah, I'm going to be talking about Jane Austen in the world of comics and manga and graphic novels and kind of like compare what the different styles and, and what different artists are doing and how they are interpreting Jane Austen into this beautiful medium that is, that is you know, embracing the classics, which I think is, it's wonderful. You know, yes, we love superheroes, but there are, there are other stories that are so worth telling. And I just think that it is, it is a very easy pass for other generations to have a, that first slice of Austen that will get them hopefully into reading the novels and watching the movies and, you know, dressing in period and maybe joining the Jane Austen Society, you know, because we need diversity. We need more. Yeah. And I strongly believe that as Janeites, we have that responsibility. We have to tell the world that it's okay to like Jane Austen. Jane Austen is cool. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Come on. <laughs> But yeah, I'm, I'm working really hard on the, on the presentation and, and I'm going to be drawing live. How exciting. The people attending will have, will have a, very, a very special sneak peek at one of the pages of Emma. I'm going to be illustrating live and um, I'm going to kind of like show my process a little bit while we discuss the different styles. And it's, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. So if you are listening to this episode and you are headed to the AGM, which by the time this comes out will be next week, make sure to look out for Georgie's presentation because it sounds absolutely fabulous. Thank you. Well, so Georgie, can you tell our listeners where they can find you online and just follow along with your work and all that good stuff? 
Absolutely. So it's Duniat Comics. You can find me as Duniat Comics on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And I have finally my website, duniatcomics.com, where you can find like my latest, my latest news on uh, what Duniat Comics is doing right now. And you can read some of the comics. I have two of my, my most popular series, which is uh, Your Sense and My Sensibility, which is uh, comic inspired, obviously, by Sense and Sensibility, but it has nothing to do with period. It's actually a slice of life comic about me and my husband because our friends make fun of us that we are Sense and Sensibility because <laughs> he's all brain and I am all heart. And uh, so you can find that comic on the website and What Would Jane Do, which is a single panel comic of Jane Austen just being witty and ironic which i am i have plans also for what would jane do into turning into a kind of like a bio comic on jane austen's life through her own comedy point of view that's in the works too <laughs> unfinished work <laughs> oh emma um and uh, but but yeah i mean i have a lot of a lot of uh, plans for duniath comics sadly i am moving way slower than what i would like but i do this just for kicks I don't I don't make a living out of my comics right but I do live through my comics which is important uh, a big part of me is in in this work and I'm just really proud that it's becoming what it is now you know and I can say okay you know I am selling merchandise that's you know putting extra money on the table and I'm just drawing and having fun with yeah. it and and I just I'm just really moved by, by the um, acceptance that that doodles are ha having, and just the the possibility of of doing something special with Emma and turning Emma into into a project that I really I strongly believe that will open up so many doors and windows for the next generation of J Knights. It's just really really it's it means a lot to me, and that's I'm just putting a lot of work into it. So when it's gonna be ready, I don't know. I'm not rushing myself because I want this to be absolutely perfect. So one step at a time. You're doing amazing work. Yes. It's all just, it's so lovely. And everyone should definitely follow you and check out your website, which is so beautiful. Like you said, you have so many of those comics on there. And it's, it's such a lovely space. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us today, not only about your own work, but also about Emma's unfinished artwork. It was just such a delight yes. to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. I, I am honored and I love the podcast and I hope we'll meet again. We'll do something later. I mean, honestly, Georgie, as soon as you would start talking about your background in Regency fashion history, I was like, okay, well. That's what I was thinking too. I'm glad I wasn't the only one. I was like, let's make a list of things Georgie needs to talk about next. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to come back. Perfect. Thank you so much to Georgie Castilla for joining us for this discussion. You can find him at duniathcomics.com and under Duniath Comics on all the social channels. You can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can find us on our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and you can email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. Stay tuned for next episode, in which we'll be talking with our guest, Sharmini Kumar, about AustinCon 2021. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.